My name is Sivia Cohen. I'm the founder of 14 Minds, a marketing agency that specializes in developing strategic campaigns that help nonprofit organizations connect with their audience. I've had the privilege of meeting some inspirational nonprofit leaders and doers who have devoted an untold number of hours to achieving their mission. Many of these incredible individuals have shared a similar frustration with me along these lines. No one knows what we really do, not even our own volunteers. It's so hard to explain all of our different services. People think our organization is a lot smaller than it is. That's why I created this podcast, to give non-for-profits a platform to share their mission with the world. I hope these conversations inspire you as much as they inspire me. everyone. Today, I am really excited to have with you Yitti Fish, the founder and director of Kochavim. Yitti, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I am the director of a nonprofit organization called Kochavim. We are based in Brooklyn as the first location, and we are committed to helping kids shine despite serious illnesses. And our anchor program and our most important program is our School for Immune-Compromised Children, which enables children who otherwise would be at home and unable to attend regular school because of their complex medical needs. Mm-hmm. It enables them to get a good education, enables them to go to school, to preschool, just like anyone else. And it makes sure that beyond just doctors, appointments, hospitals, and home, they have additional safe place that they can go to school and get their education. Wow. Amazing. So with which type of illnesses? So any kind of illness in which there is a child that has, usually it's immune compromised. So that would be if a child has a heart transplant and they're on certain drugs that prevent them from being exposed to germs or children on active chemotherapy, kidney transplants. And there's a whole host of diseases that will compromise the child's immunity. And we know prevent them from going to school with 30 kids where they can pick up any germs and become you know too sick to be able to function. So one of the things that we do is we could write, you know, today's times, we could probably understand the concept of germs, but we've been in existence already for eight years. And I think it becomes a lot easier to explain to people what it means to be in a sterile environment because unfortunately of the last year and Corona, but our children and children we service were out of school even before anybody knew what Corona was. And we were taking safety measures and precautions to make sure that they were safe. And if you were to visit our class, the first thing we would do is send you straight to the sink to wash your hands. And then at different intervals during the day, the children wash up, wash their hands. And everybody has their own box and their own supplies. Uh, way before it was commonplace. Yes. Exactly. And we did shut down for COVID, obviously, because our children were at higher risk. But some of the protocols and procedures were already in place uh, before the rest of the world caught on. We do have an ear purifying system that purifies the ear. And children that are literally can be on chemo in the morning and come to our school in the afternoon. Or, you know, we even had children like wheeled in in their carriages, still like sleepy from post radiation. And we are so lucky to have them you know, be part of a regular school setting. It's obviously a small class. If a child isn't feeling well, has a runny nose, the mothers know not to send them. Teachers have to be feeling fine. And all this is, a, I think, an outgrowth of a volunteer experience that I had when I was around 18 years old. Yeah, I, so I have to ask you, tell us, like, your background and how you got involved in, in starting an organization. 
Okay. So my job, actually, I have a degree in education. I've been an educator for years, and I actually write curriculum in different schools. My focus is on literacy. And I was a volunteer when I was, you know, starting from when I was, I think, 14, I started volunteering. And I noticed in my volunteering experience something very interesting, and that is that children were having a lot of fun, but not having a lot of education. Children that were going through serious illnesses. In other words, we were providing magic shows and fun experiences, and we were dancing, and we were having a good time. But I was working together with Vinala, a little girl who was seven years old, and we were coloring a picture, and it was around this time of year before Pesach. And her mother told me, could you teach her something about Pesach? I would love for her to know something going into the Seder. And I said, sure. What will I teach her? And I said, give me a few minutes. And I ran to Eichler's and I bought one of these Pesach coloring books. And we went through them page by page. And we colored Pesach pictures instead of just regular pictures. And I was watching this little girl drinking all the information. And I was just astounded at how she was just, feeling so good about herself that she knew what was going on. Her mother was watching and I saw like a tear coming out of her mother's eye. And she was like, wow, my daughter is regular. She's normal. She's learning. She's gaining. And it was a very special experience and a pivotal experience in which I realized that there's something about education that fills you and it, it provides a certain hope and a certain satisfaction. And it's been something we've been committed to doing is providing educational experiences for immunocompromised children ever since in some capacity. And our classroom is just the outgrowth of that moment. Wow, that's incredible. And and from that you established Kochavim. What was the what was the process to so it became like an official organization? So like everything it's a slow process and a lot of experiences combined. And right now we have a branch in Brooklyn where we service kids from Bar Park, Flatbush, Crown Heights. And we have another location in Muncie, and we service children from that area. And so it's two classes, two offices, and the classes is one of our services, but we also have an after-school program. So siblings, immune-compromised children can also do their homework and get supper. Like if there's a mother who's in the hospital until 6 o'clock, we will her kids go until she comes home. So they can come to our, we call it our space, and they can do their homework there. And we have like crafts a snack, and programming there. So it's an after-school program, a Sunday program, and then we have a team program, a boys program, all at the space, and we also have a parent support program. Approximately once a month, we bring down a speaker with different parents to give a kind of, you know, for parents going through difficult times. So it's our space is a happening space, and there's always something going on there. From like 9.30 to 2.30, it's the school in one half, and the other section is our after-school center, and our teen center and activity center. So anytime you come by, there's always activity. There are always things happening. Wow, uh, that's that's amazing. So tell me, if you had to pick one story, like what's your favorite story from recent years? Okay, that's going to be a tough one because you know, I feel every like every day has, you know, amazing stories. Right. Every day is actually not just one story, but every day, every moment, it's a story upon a story upon a story upon a story. So I think I'm going to share this story with you. So one of the other services that we do is that we provide support at our center, which I described. We provide support at home, 
if there's any kind of like babysitting or dishes or um, even homework help at home, we'll provide services at home. And then our third prong is we provide services in the hospital. Now, because it's COVID and because it's the current situation, obviously our services to the hospital are very, very, very limited. And we make do by sending boxes to the hospital with different educational activities. We just sent out yesterday quite a bit of boxes with UPS to different locations with Haggadah and different activities um, as far as Texas, Florida, Memphis, Tennessee, so that children, wherever they are, whichever medical center they are, they can get their educational um, experience with stickers and things to paste in, and they can actually go on to Zoom with the classroom teacher, and they can be part of it. But we can't get into hospitals because of the restrictions, different restrictions that are in place. And... This is a story that happened approximately a half a year ago, around September. I wouldn't say the height of Corona, but it was, you know, still were many, many restrictions in place. And there was a family from Israel who came for medical treatment with their three-year-old daughter to a distant medical center, not in the New York area. And I helped them fly into and get settled in the house that they were staying. And then I flew back and around a week later, she told me that she would love if I can come back and support the family on their first day at the hospital. So I told her, you know that American hospitals don't allow visitors, so I won't be able to come in and support you during that first hospital visit in a foreign country with a foreign language. So she said, okay, could you at least come? And I have other kids here with me that would benefit from just seeing a friendly face who speaks some Hebrew and can take them out to any attractions, just an extra hand for our first day of chemotherapy. So I was debating, do I fly all the way out three and a half hours for, you know, to, you know, to spend some time with her kids? I had just been there. And she's like, and you can try to see if you can come into the hospital. I'm like, uh-uh, there's no chance, you know. And I made a decision that Sunday that I will fly out Monday morning. So Monday morning at 4 a.m., I got onto a plane. I landed at 8 and I knocked on the door to her house and her husband said, she's just left to the hospital and we'd love if you can spend some time with the kids. And I said, okay, no problem. I'm just going to go to the hospital and I'm going to see if I can get in. And but I'll probably be back in 10 minutes because there's no chance. So I took an Uber and I get into the car and I head to the hospital. And on the way, I get a call from this mother, and she says, could you translate, please, for me? The nurse was trying to tell me something. I get on the phone, and I say, hi, I'm a friend, and I speak English and Hebrew, and I can translate. She says, we are so, so, so sorry and so embarrassed. I was like, what happened? She says, on Friday, when we put it into the computer that this family will need a translator, a hospital translator, on their first day of chemo, it seems like the secretary mistakenly said Hindu translator instead of Hebrew translator. Oh, <laughs> oh, so wow. We do not have any Hebrew translator available today. And it is crucial, you know, to sign all the consent forms and on the first day of treatment to have a Hebrew speaking person available who can come down and translate. Do you by any chance know anybody in the area that can come down? I was like, I'll be there in two minutes. And I walked into the hospital and they said, are you visiting? I said, no, I'm translating. They're like, what's your translation ID? I was like, I don't have any. Like, well, you can't be here then. And I said, just call up to the floor 
I'd be like, yes, yes, we're expecting her. We need her. So I feel like that story was amazing because, you know, everyone wants to do good things. But we have to do our hashtalis and sometimes Hashem says no and sometimes he says yes. And we just have to do our best and he takes care of the rest because I hadn't even made a decision to fly out on Friday when the secretary made a mistake and said Hindu instead of Hebrew. I was still in New York, but apparently the seeds were already planted to enable me to be able to be there at the right moment in order to translate for her and be able to get into the hospital. So I spent that day translating in the hospital. The next day I was ready on the approved list. I was able to go back and spend some time with her, you know, on her first days and really make a difference. And I just find that story to be so humbling. Now we know nothing, we do nothing and we just have to try our best and really leave Hashem to guide our footsteps. And that's my favorite story. Love it. I love it. Thank you. So back to running the day-to-day of your organization, what would you say is the most satisfying or inspiring part of what you do? Which part of you do you enjoy the most? Watching, I believe, the kids learn and watching them make gains. And we love to graduate our kids into regular school, into regular programs. That's our biggest nachas. And when I have a principal of yeshiva tell me that Yitzchak is in first grade and he was in our program for three years from when he was like two and a half. And he has no social, emotional, or educational losses from the three years he spent on chemotherapy. That is awesome. (laughs) I just have so much satisfaction from that moment and watching the children learn and not, and not lose out. And even siblings, you know, when they can come to our educational center and do their homework and the teacher, they go back into school the next day and they, their life seems in order and they have that comfort of having a big sister doing their homework with them and a predictable system in place despite the chaos in their life. That's just so satisfying to me. Wow. Okay. I love that. What would you say is your biggest day-to-day challenge in running? I know running an organization is super fast paced and there's always so much going on. So what's your biggest day-to-day challenge and how do you work to overcome it? What are your solutions? Okay, so we're in the process of working to overcome our challenges, but definitely we have over 600 volunteers in so many different, like some of them are cooking, some of them are driving, some of them are going to homes, some of them are going to hospitals, and it's a very big operation. We have 25 coordinators, um, 12 paid staff that do incredible work, and our biggest challenge is probably like hundreds of open requests, very fast-paced, lots of pressure, and not so much downtime, but there has to be someone on call all the time to answer whatever questions families may need. We are there to support them. We do not touch anything medical, but where can I fill a prescription at this time of night? How can I get from this place to that place in the middle of the night? So we're really there as a call center to answer any questions that families may have. And that may be American families living here. And then we have around every year, we have around I would say 80 families throughout the year who are coming in from Israel. So we have a Hebrew speaking call center as well. So it's a lot of pressure, very fast paced and so much going on. So what are you, what are you trying to do? Like, I know it's a process, it's an everyday process, but like maybe something right. mm-hmm. with, with other, you know, people in similar right. situations. So our first thing is that we're working to computerize and have a good CRM that basically keeps track and logs every activity, a lot of reports that we can pull 
reports and track what's going on. A lot of communication, a lot of feedback. A volunteer finishes her shift. She clocks in and says, I'm done, went well. Or she can say, knocked on the door, nobody was home. And then we'll follow up with that. You know, we need more space, more staff. But having a good commuter program tracking our activities is, is crucial. So what would you say is your biggest big picture challenge? That was the, I guess, the biggest day-to-day challenge. What's the biggest big picture challenge that you deal with running your nonprofit? So I'm going to say that we have hundreds and hundreds, really, very grateful parents out there. And our biggest referral is parent-to-parent. You know, somebody sits in the hospital and says, why don't you, you know, get in contact with Kavim? And that's basically how we, you know, get our referrals. We... Right now, we're small and we do not do a lot of marketing, a lot of advertising. So there's always that struggle between marketing and confidentiality as well as getting the word out and who our organization is and what they do. Sometimes I feel like we have over 600 volunteers and does each volunteer know what the other volunteer does? Like, Do our own ambassadors know what our organization does? So that's, that's something that we're working on too. Understanding and a comprehensive internal education and then uh, external marketing and branding. <laughs> yeah, I think they think that's a pretty common, just from my experience, that nonprofits feel mm-hmm. because you get so mm-hmm. immersed in the day to day and the immediate need that taking mm-hmm. that step back and saying, okay, well, how do we communicate that properly? That can definitely be a challenge. So now I have kind of a fun question. If someone were just to walk over to you and hand you a very large sum of money, and say, do whatever you want with this money, what would you spend it on? So much fun. If it's very, very large, then the answer would be space. We are just always out of space. I want more space so that we can run a boys program and a girls program simultaneously. You know, now we have to divide the hours. I'd open another class with different, you know, for different age children, a lot of real estate space. And another thing that we do, which is very important, is that when families are coming from out of town for treatment, we host families in apartments. And most of these apartments are very generous volunteers who open up their homes and sometimes have a dedicated either basement apartment. Some people bought the house next door and they're not sure what they're doing with it yet. And they give us that apartment, sometimes three floors for a family. And we're in charge of like furnishing it and putting on the linens and getting the refrigerator, stove, couch, electrical, like small electrical appliances, Betty Crockers and all that and um, furnishing the apartments. So I would love to, well, it's a lot, a lot of money. Then I would say six apartments, each one, two bedrooms. It could be in one building. It could be in multiple buildings. I don't care. But having six two-bedroom apartments would be so, so, so super cool and would really, really help us accommodate the housing needs of every out-of-town family from London, from wherever they're coming in for treatment, it would be really cool. And then maybe I would throw in, if there's a lot of money, like one four-bedroom apartment too. Why not for a big family who's coming in with like eight kids? (laughs) That sounds amazing. (laughs) Um, Let's keep that on the wish list. Yes. So let's just take a moment to pause here. If anybody listening thinks that they could use the help of your organization or somebody they know could help or maybe even want to get involved as a volunteer, what should they do? Right. Okay. So we do have a website, kochavimcure.org, and they can click the volunteer button or the contact button and give us a call. That's the best place for them to reach out to us. They can either call our Brooklyn or our Muncie office. It's the same number, just a different extension. And one of the secretaries will be happy to guide them on how to get more assistance. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. So final question. This is kind of like, 
you know, the, the big question and leaving everybody with some food for thought. Your organization has a mission that you, you've described to us. What does the mm-hmm. world look like? If you can say we have achieved our mission, what does the world look like at that point? So I think that every child with a complicated medical condition will have access to a quality education in a safe and stimulating way. I hear of too many kids who are stuck at home and they are bored and it's only because of their medical condition that they can't have access to safe and stimulating education. And I think that every childhood should be a time to learn, a time to grow, a time to create, and a time to accomplish. And illness should not be the main focus of their lives, but there should be that fulfilling feeling of, I am a productive and growing part of society. And uh, childhood should be a safe time and a safe place where they can learn and create and grow. Wow. I'm so inspired. That's amazing. Yiti, thank you so much for being here, for doing this with me. I really enjoyed learning about your organization. I think it's unbelievable what you're doing. I can tell you probably don't sleep very much. I'm so glad we got to talk. Thank you so much. Sure. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Change the World podcast. If you have any feedback or comments, or if you are a nonprofit leader who is interested in learning more about how 14 Minds can help you, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me by email at sivia at 14minds.com. For more nonprofit content, follow me on LinkedIn or visit 14minds.com to subscribe to our mailing list.